the deputy attorney general offered to wear a wire into the White House. The point of Rosenstein wearing the wire into a meeting with the president was what? What did he hope to obtain? I can't characterize what Rod was thinking or what he was hoping at that moment. But the reason you would have someone wear a concealed recording device would be to collect evidence. And in this case, what was the true nature of the president's motivation in calling for the firing of Jim Comey? If you're talking about this as a coup, it is a coup that necessitates the involvement of half of the people that Donald Trump appointed the cabinet and Mike Pence coming on board saying, yes, he should be removed from office. Right. We're a democracy. People enforce the law, can't take it in their own hands. And was this an attempted bureaucratic coup? I don't know. I don't know who's telling the truth, but we're going to get to the bottom of it. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So it seems that Andrew McCabe, the former deputy director of the FBI, gave a tell-all interview to 60 Minutes. And he said the president was a sharp dude of high principle, a world historic wizard at leadership, beloved of all for his kindness, openness, deep compassion, and steadfast moral commitments, both to the Constitution and to a meticulous personal code of conduct. Okay, no. Really, McCabe admitted that the Department of Justice, while he was there, considered the president catastrophic, an emergency. And as desperate presidents call for desperate measures, McCabe said the crowd at justice discussed ways to bring the cabinet around to ejecting Trump as non compos mentis under the 25th Amendment. So the 25th Amendment establishes the idea that the vice president becomes president when the president is dead. But what if he's kind of dead. The amendment makes provisions for that. President Garfield's 80-day coma before he died and President Wilson's stroke-induced incapacity for a full 18 months of his presidency. What if those men had said, uh, while they were in their comas, they still had this. They wanted to carry on as POTUS. Or maybe while they were in a coma, they somehow tapped out, I got this, with one finger. How would the vice president wrest the steering wheel from a careening and nodding grandpa who's decided the Prius is an F-16? Well, according to the 25th Amendment, the vice president would have to talk him out of his worst impulses, as we know from the no end of memoirs that Trump's men routinely do, and then get consensus from the cabinet that the president should be pastured. Now, I see how, if McCabe and Justice had managed to rally the cabinet to oust Trump way back in May of 2017, he might have done less damage. And according to the philosopher Immanuel Kant or John Locke or someone, that would have been a very good thing. But to be honest, and this is just personal, I don't want Trump in a nice green pasture with daisies. I want him in Supermax. And not the kind with, like, butterscotch pudding on Wednesdays and tennis. I just want him in jail. You know, jail, like in the movies. Because the problem with this president is not that he's dumb or crazy. It's that he's a felon. And in stirring up opposition to anyone who kicked him out of office from his gilded pasture, he also could have been a menace to the United States. I just want Trump in prison or in exile. But above all, I really just want him sanctioned into oblivion. I want him so he can't travel to Florida. He's completely insolvent with a FICO score of zero degrees Kelvin. No property. He can't bank anywhere. Fully Manaforted can't raise money to save his life. 
with no money and no travel, Trump could definitely, as far as I'm concerned, be wearing an anklet under house arrest in a modest tract house in Siberia with a good wood stove. I mean, come on, I'm not without mercy. Yeah, Trump would have to chop the wood himself, but fresh air, it would do him some good. My guest today is Danny Savalos. He's a criminal defense attorney and legal analyst for MSNBC. I know him a bit from chatting with him on TV, and he's truly the most affable, charming dude on this legal analyst beat. I'm so glad he's coming to the studio, and he proposed we talk about Paul Manafort, who's in trouble again. I'll be back with Danny in just a minute. And now, Sarah Huckabee Sanders explains which presidents God wanted and which ones God didn't. I think God calls all of us at different points in our life to be different roles. And God, at this point, wanted Donald J. Trump to be president of the United States. That's why he is here to serve. Barack Obama was God just being like, I wonder if we put somebody in there who looked a little different. What would people do? And we saw what people did. They wanted everything for free and they freaked out. So that's why he course corrected with Donald Trump. George Washington was absolutely chosen by God because it was God's first grand experiment. He was like, why don't we just take a bunch of people that are pissed off from another country, put them in a new place, and then pick a guy with a kick-ass hairdo to be on the money. Jimmy Carter is an interesting one because he, on paper, is a very devout person. So you might think that God put him in the office, but he got there through deceit and lusting in his heart. Bill Clinton was just kind of a joke that God played on us for eight years just to see where our senses of humor laid and how much he could get away with, kind of like a prankster at a sleepover, put your hand in a glass of water to see if you might pee the bed. We definitely peed the bed. Harrison was ordained by God, and then God got so pissed that he didn't wear a hat at the inauguration that he called him home real quick. Grant, Hayes, and Garfield were all ordained by God because they all rocked a tight beard. God was into that. President James Madison was chosen, but mostly because of his wife's cooking. Ronald Reagan was not chosen by God because God doesn't like actors. Abraham Lincoln was not chosen by God because his voice was funny. My dad, Mike Huckabee, has not been ordained by God to be president yet. Joining me in the studio is Danny Savalos. He's a criminal defense attorney and a legal analyst at MSNBC. Danny, welcome to Trumpcast. It's an honor to finally be here. I mean, I only petitioned to get myself here, but I am thrilled. <laughs> we have been planning to have you for so long. Oh, good. Let's talk about an invitation that was rejected before we get to talking about Manafort. Namely, I guess New York's not going to take Amazon. I'm disappointed. I have to tell you, I think New York is spoiled. It's the center of the universe. But like any big city, you want more business and more jobs. And I think our saturation point of traffic at this point, we're already at 100 percent. I mean, what can I mean, if it's 101 percent of more people commuting and whatnot, what's the big deal to me? I do like jobs and like an actual jobs. It feels like. We've got so much money laundering and so many empty <laughs> Hong Kong-owned condos. It seems like just jobs where you just punch the clock and get your check. We've got FinCEN. We've got deposits of exactly $100,000 <laughs> in cash, in suitcases, which can't possibly be from an invoice or anything like that. It would be nice to have some real money that is legal and obviously documented because when I 
order my Keurig cups and they arrive in eight seconds, there's a paper trail. It's all digital. It's all online and it's all saved. So the government can track it and it's legal. Thank Someone goodness. has built a better mousetrap and it's Jeff Bezos, whatever else he's done or not done. I kind of love American media's letter to Jeff Bezos, which is Trump related. Yes. It's germane to the topic. Let's go through it quickly because we got to get to Manafort. But okay. I have some questions for you about the Bezos what debacle and then yeah. act of daring do on the part of him and Gavin DeBecker, who's been a longtime obsession of mine. So anyway, you give us your summary because you know this story very well. So AMI makes a demand on Jeff Bezos. And this is my favorite part of the analysis. As I have it, and I had to chart this out with a pencil, AMI demanded that Bezos change the way coverage or change coverage of AMI's coverage of Bezos. Right. I think that's what it was. That's right. And so that's right off the bat. I think that confused a lot of folks because ascertaining what the demand was required ping ponging back and forth between the demandor and the demandee. But taking a step back, we have a set of laws, extortion, bribery, and they're very curious laws. And I may not take a position similar to all the parade of prosecutors that you've had on this show, but as a criminal defense attorney, I've handled extortion and bribery cases. Hmm. And philosophically, they're really interesting because you can have two independently perfectly legal acts kind of like chocolate and peanut butter, that when you put them together, Mm. become a crime. But independently, they're not a crime. Wait, are you saying Reese's peanut butter cups are a crime? I'm bringing everybody back. They're delightful. Imagine an evil Reese's, because I'm bringing (laughs) us all back to the 80s in that commercial where two people are rounding a corner and they whack into each other. One is carrying chocolate, one is carrying an open jar of peanut butter. But consider this your evil Reese's peanut butter cup. Okay. And the thing about extortion and bribery is that had somebody pictures that they found on a street of someone's naked body, there would be really nothing illegal about sending those out. Similarly, there's nothing illegal about somebody giving me a bag of cash for free. Mm. But if I couple that with I'm going to release photographs if you don't give me a bag of cash. Now we get into an area of criminal law. And going back even further, the original concept of extortion does not fit that neatly into what AMI did. So while you can say that this was absolutely extortion in your opinion, but legally it doesn't fit neatly into the classic traditional definition. Traditionally, Mm. it's, hey, that's a real nice store you have there. Mm -hmm. It'd be a shame if it caught fire. In other words... I will burn your store unless you give me money. Yeah. But the modern definition of extortion, and the courts have recognized this, has to be broader because people extort in many ways. They bribe in many ways. And a demand doesn't always have to be for a bag of cash. It can Mm. be anything of value. That's Mm -hmm. the federal definition. Mm -hmm. Favorable media coverage could absolutely be considered something of value. Mm -hmm. On the other side, what is the threat? The threat doesn't always have to be a violence. It can be an injury to reputation. That, mm-hmm. again, comes from the federal definition of extortion. Hmm. So the modern view is that extortion is much more hazy when it comes to trying to define what exactly it is. And like I said, it can involve two acts that independently might be perfectly legal, but coupled with a demand or a corrupt purpose behind it or an evil meaning, mm-hmm. they suddenly become illegal. And I have to say, just before I get painted as an unbending defense attorney here, Mm -hmm. the reality is this was morally a very questionable thing to do. Mm -hmm. If you take a look at the journalism side of it, the way journalists typically handle something like this is they call up the other side and say, hey, we're going to run a story about you and we might use these pictures. 
You can comment, not comment, but this is what we're doing. Journalists don't call and make a demand of their own. Hey, we want something. Mm -hmm. We want a quid pro quo. Mm. We want some benefit to us. And in this case, it's don't reveal that we're basically in Trump's pocket or don't report that we're doing this hand in hand with a campaign or hand in hand with Trump or on the greater story of our catch and kill practices, which may be the subject of their non-prosecution agreement, which they may have breached. It seems like there are three ways that they may have been acting politically, that they are acting politically, and that Bezos had said they were acting politically. That's what they wanted him to recant. One would be attacking him as a way of getting at The Washington Post for its ongoing coverage of Trump. That's right. Two is... It's been plumping for Saudi Arabia in these crazy circulars that have shown up at Walmart and Safeway, I believe. It's, you know, a long, glossy thing saying that Saudi Arabia is saving us from terrorism. This as an effort, I think, in part to whitewash Saudi Arabia's reputation after it has blood on its hands for the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who, of course, wrote for The Washington Post. So that's another thing. And then the third thing is these catch and kill practices. That's right. And all of those are pretty well documented. I mean, Trump on a regular basis says Bezos, he calls it Amazon's Washington Post. He's critical of Bezos online. I think he applauded the National Enquirer for digging up the original set of sexts or whatever. I think, didn't he call him, I think he called him Jeff Bezos. I think that was one of his tweets. That is hilarious. Yeah. Not yeah. since Adam shit, you know, <laughs> has word, he really landed it. The word the word hilarious has taken on a totally new meaning in the last <laughs> couple of years, hasn't it? Yes, you know, yes. yes and to what you're saying, Bill on that, the amazing thing is that AMI is a journalism-related company, and they made a demand. I see you laughing at yeah. that, yeah, in theory. But they made a demand upon Jeff Bezos for him to pick up the phone and influence the Washington Post, which reflects that they don't seem to understand that any relationship between Bezos and the Washington Post has to separate the editorial, the news-gathering side. Jeff Bezos couldn't pick up the phone and call an editor at the WAPO and say, this is the coverage that I demand. I mean, that demand might make sense if it was coming from a mafioso type, but it was coming from another journalistic entity. And that's the part that blows me away. And, you know, Virginia, we haven't even gotten to their potential violation of the non-prosecution agreement, which is there are several reasons why the government could be salivating. But one of them you just mentioned, which is if they were caught doing this with Jeff Bezos, Who else are they doing this to? Mm -hmm. And how often has this been going on? Yeah, we've heard ominous stories about some kind of vault they have with compromise on all of us. And that the second we mess up, they're going to show you those many blackface pictures of you in 1950, (laughs) if I remember. Just one more thing on the subject of compromise. That's been another odd theme of the last two years, up to and including Ralph Northam's now infamous yearbook photo of him either dressed as a Klansman or dressed in blackface or neither, as he claims, but that was on his yearbook page. That was dug up by Republicans and deployed as compromise, right, to destabilize him. It is itself offensive and destabilizing. So it is compromising. Mm -hmm. But as Bezos showed, it's what you do after the compromise drops or after you're blackmailed by it that counts. So you can do what David Letterman did when he was asked for a million dollars, right, not to reveal various affairs he had. Now, the affairs where he was cheating, he may have been sexually harassing women in the workplace. It was certainly the kind of thing that could have wrecked his reputation. But by saying it, calling the blackmailer out, he ended it. 
And, you know, with Northam, with Brett Kavanaugh, with a lot of these figures, even with Donald Trump about the so-called P-tape, it's always, I think, oh, that surfaces, that's horrible, that's a terrible data point. Like Mm -hmm. when the Kremlin surfaced stuff about tax havens on Bill Browder, the great whistleblower on the Kremlin, right? But it's what they do after. It's the way that people say it's not Christine Blasey Ford who convicted Brett Kavanaugh. It's Brett Kavanaugh who convicted himself. When he started talking, he sounded crazy and guilty. And Ralph Northam the same way. He might have said, I was so eager to fit in that I would do anything in those times. I'm a politician. I have this craven side of me. And I did this racist thing. Done. And if you want me to resign, I'll go home. The old kind of crisis management. But instead, he says things that, well, if I didn't think you were a racist before, I now think you're a lunatic. That's right. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned David Letterman because he really is the in modern times. He is the origin of this approach. But the approach of meeting your blackmailer head on and just revealing the information on your own terms, it really fits perfectly into a contract analysis because Think about it in that the blackmailer believes they have something of value Mm -hmm. and that value is not revealing something about the target. And by revealing it on their own, they completely devalue whatever it is they're threatening you with. So it, it makes perfect sense from a contract analysis. The one thing is that it comes down to fear. People think. They always hold out hope. It's a primal thing. They hold out Mm. hope that if I just keep quiet, everything will blow Mm. over. I mean, that's why. Why do you think we have so many crimes and then the equally as bad cover ups in human history? Yeah, because there's that just unstoppable human instinct to try and hope everything goes away. We all do it. I mean, some more than others, but we all try to cover up in some way. It's rare to come out and say, I did this. Let the chips fall where they may. This is a perfect way to move to Manafort because there may be no one in this story, Trump as an exception, who has so much torque put on his behavior by some force that we can't see. That's right. Some invisible force. So I don't think it's dick pics. I think it might be something worse. Pictures of, as they call it at AMI, his manhood. My favorite thing, by the way, they're Harlequin terms. For such a scurrilous, gross place as the Enquirer, they use a lot of cleavage and manhood to describe things. Anyway, it's not just that kind of blackmail. To do the thing Manafort does, crime, 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 get caught, keep criming. Amazing, yeah. Means that he has a lot at stake. We know that he once made sounds as though he were suicidal a couple of years ago before he got involved with the Trump campaign. He doesn't seem to care so much about his own life or his own sentence. But is he protecting someone? Is there blackmail that could come out? What do you think? I have my own hypothesis, but I want to hear you. I think from a starting point, Everybody is protecting someone. Just to reference Michael Cohen briefly, I think that's what fell apart with Michael Cohen's complete cooperation. Mm. You'll recall he didn't get the benefit of a complete cooperation agreement. And my theory, it's just a theory, Mm. that he was willing to talk about Trump, about Trump Jr., about everybody in that orbit. And then some prosecutor must have asked him about his father-in-law. That's my it's just a there's I have no evidence Mm. for it. I'm just saying that's a possibility that. Michael Cohen may have drawn a line with a family member Mm -hmm. or someone close to him and said, I'm willing to dime on Trump. I'm willing to Mm -hmm. snitch on Manafort, everybody else. I'll tell you about all the demons, all the buried bodies. Mm -hmm. But I draw the line at so-and-so. And And just as an example, his father-in-law. Now, Manafort is a more curious individual because he elected to go to trial. Now, at the time, I thought, is this just one of those old school, I'm a tough guy and I don't snitch attitudes? Mm -hmm. Is he holding out hope? For a pardon that I didn't believe so much because I think Manafort was able to take stock of his situation. He knew he wasn't that close to Trump. I mean, 
personally. Of mm. all the people that have been indicted, Trump doesn't appear to have been that close personally with Manafort, the way he is with Roger Stone or right. Michael Cohen. Manafort's old partner. Yeah, Manafort's old, right, exactly. Yeah. Roger Stone, who was recently arrested at his home very visibly. And so for that reason, I don't know that Manafort's ever been banking on a pardon, but at the same time, why go to trial on a case that had just overwhelming evidence against him unless he was banking on that pardon? There are a lot of different theories I have, so I'd like to hear yours. Okay, here's my theory. Okay. But, I, but I like that. I think that every, well, one, with Anthony Cormier, who's been on the show many times from BuzzFeed. Yes. I think that Trump is not the top of the investigation. I think Manafort has his sights on someone over Trump. Amazing and to think that there's somebody I, over Trump. Over yes. the president, the yes. leader of the free world. And when Anthony Cormier first suggested that in a very coy way on this show, my jaw actually dropped. It was radio silence because I thought that he must have misspoken because I still am under the illusion that the president of the United States is the most Who powerful else? person in the world. But apparently he answers to Vladimir Putin. Anyway, if that's true, that the top of the Mueller investigation is the Kremlin, which is consistent with Mueller's background doing counterterrorism and counterintelligence. He changed the FBI from simple law enforcement to a national security operation. So he's interested, I think, in the capo, right? That added up to me. And then also we have story after story of the Russians disliking when people flip on them. There's news about Mikhail Ledzin, who you may remember died in 2015 in his hotel room in DuPont Circle, of blunt force trauma that right, some said right. was self-inflicted in a drunken stupor. So he just banged around on the furniture in his room, I guess. Others, including Christopher Steele, say that it was murder. That was nine months or something before Manafort came on board the Trump campaign. He has things like that very much in his mind. Lezen had been very close to the Kremlin. He invented right. RT and then fell out of favor. Manafort, not to totally drag this out, but as you know, Konstantin Kalimnik, known as Manafort's brain in Russia, is a fairly well-established, I'll say alleged, but Russian spy. <laughs> if your brain is a Russian spy, you're a Russian spy. Manafort has been working Kremlin side for a long time. That's true, yes. Flipping on the Kremlin, yeah. giving up Kalimnik, giving up Deripaska, giving up, well, Yanukovych is already in exile, but giving up his many, many, many Russian contacts was not going to endear him to the Kremlin. And even if he were safe in Supermax. His family. His family. That's right. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, a small data point is that his daughter, unlike Michael Cohen's daughter or Michael Flynn's son or some of the other kids, the Trump kids, she very officially changed her name. I mean, she knew what her dad was up to with blood money a long time ago, as we know from leaked texts. Mm -hmm. And she seems to be, the reports are that she's abroad. I mean, I don't know. When the kids start hiding, and I think she did that, made that change a year ago, coupled with the other data points, I think he's afraid of a Russian hit. Here's why I think you're right, is that about a year ago, the reporting came out that Manafort was deep in debt mm -hmm. to Deripaska. Yes, and at that time, I thought briefly, well, then maybe this whole thing about him being afraid of Russians is not true because the worst place he could be is owing a Russian oligarch a ton of money, millions and millions of dollars. But then I came around because that fit into the idea that maybe his way of paying back was offering up information. And we I think we know that he was at least providing information from the campaign outside of the campaign. So I very originally, I'm embarrassed to say, thought I discounted the Russian threat thing with Manafort. 
But now I've come to really believe, I think, that that is a lot of it. I think that he knows real fear. He knows how things happen in Russia. He is worried for his family. And maybe that's why he went to trial on all of these cases to demonstrate Mm -hmm. not just to Trump, hey, I'm a good guy. I'm not turning. But to demonstrate to the Russians, hey, I'm not turning. Mm -hmm. And then when that went south, then he's still in his mind holding out. And then eventually he capitulated. And now he's in that weird, to use a Miyagi analogy, he's Mm -hmm. not either, he's not cooperating all the way and he's not fighting it all the way, but he's doing it in the middle. And that's a really dangerous place to be. And he got caught. Mm -hmm. And so now, I mean, he loses the benefit of his cooperation agreement. He still pleaded guilty, but the government doesn't have to say anything nice about him at sentencing. Mm -hmm. And he's in a real, real tough place. But he always was. I mean, his set of crimes put him in a very tough position. This is interesting to hear your description of what it meant that he went to trial. For some reason, that didn't even occur to me as the signature mistake of this period in his life, a seeming mistake. So these recent court documents, the heavily redacted transcript of Andrew Weissman's presentation to the judge, is it Amy Berman? Amy Berman Jackson. Amy Berman Jackson. He says that certain things that Manafort said when he, I guess, decided he had nothing left to lose and he was going to name Konstantin Kalimnik, that this went to the heart of the matter that the Office of the Special Counsel is investigating. If it's true that Manafort has not just had contacts with Russian agents, but is himself a Russian agent, working first for Yanukovych, Kremlin side Yanukovych in Ukraine, working with Deripaska, who's closely aligned with Putin, and working with Konstantin Kalimnik, widely regarded as a Russian spy, this may go to the heart of the collusion case. Absolutely. And this is a major connector because the things we know are that Manafort was, at least for a brief period of time, the head of the Trump campaign. So that, you know, as we move along in time, we can look around at each other and say, wait, so we know this now. These are things that we know. Yeah. And with Manafort, information is coming out that it's pretty hard to escape the conclusion that this is the center, or at least one of the centers, of the Russia collusion investigation. I mean, between him, the Roger Stone, although the Roger Stone connection still require a few more dots to be connected, although it's close. But with Manafort, I think a lot of folks would safely say, there's the connection, it's essentially established. And maybe when the Mueller report comes out, that's going to be the centerpiece of it, is that this information flowed through Manafort. Maybe it trickled out to people like Stone and elsewhere, but maybe Manafort was the key. And maybe that's why they indicted him as early as they did in the investigation, because they thought maybe he would provide information on those bigger fish that they're after. People always talk about the complexity of this story. And, you know, this recent New Yorker cartoon had someone trying to solve it with one of those Carrie Matheson boards that has string connecting Mm -hmm. Guccifer to Roger Stone and so forth. He got some stuff wrong, by the way. It's easy to do. Yes. Natasha Bertrand pointed out, I think he called like torsion, caution or something like that. It's very easy to do. Yeah. It's very complicated. (laughs) But that guy, by the way, should not go to bed. He's been very sloppy and he needs to really work on his Carrie Matheson board. So people say it's complex, but it's starting to come into relief, isn't it, in some ways? We know with Manafort, we're starting to see the quid pro quo. He wanted debt relief. He said to Rick Gates, who, by the way, seems like he's been an amazing sure. witness for the government. They he's, will say nice things about him. Of course. And he's an ideal cooperator because he's low yeah. on the totem pole. It's psychologically, he's low enough on the totem pole that at some point, I guarantee he turned to his wife and he's like, why are they doing this? I mean, I was a low level guy. Why am I suffering 
for all of the, these guys are bums. You know what? I'm going to tell the government everything they want to know about him because, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get any benefit out of this. I'm not going to get a pardon. These low level guys get forgotten and they know it. And so when they get indicted, they say, oh, the heck with this. Yeah, I'm not holding. I'm not a man for it. I'm not I don't have the resources of a Roger Stone. I'm not a big shot. I'm a low-level guy, and I took orders from Manafort. I was his lackey. Yes. So you better believe I'm going to cooperate. Now, now, so I'm not surprised that it's someone like Gates, who has been a picture-perfect cooperating witness, and people like Manafort, who are higher up on the chain of command, have strayed somewhat yeah. and gotten in trouble. We have had Mimi Roca on the show. I know you know her. And she said that men, maybe women too, but men in the mafia who have some father relationship with a like a big boss, you know, mm-hmm. Gambino, Trump, Manafort to Gates make great cooperating witnesses yep. because they connect onto the FBI. Right. And suddenly Cohen is a perfect example. Felix Sater is a perfect example. You know, they're looking for him. I mean, she says pretty simply like daddy figures and that, you know, if it once was Trump, then it becomes Andrew Weissman or it becomes someone else on Mueller's team who, when they come in and testify before the grand jury, according to Felix Sater, they get greeted very warmly, at least by some of the people there. And if they've come in many times, they're sort of congratulated on whatever happened. And, you know, it feels almost like La Cosa Nostra all over again. It does. And this is why government investigators, FBI agents, they're often very polite. The myth of the room where they sweat people out and yell at them yeah. and they treat them poorly is really a myth because you do in law enforcement catch more flies with honey than vinegar. And people like Michael Cohen, you're absolutely right. He likes to be part of a community. And what I've seen just in the snippets of him going into court or interacting with the government, he's now become the Michael Cohen to the government. You know, he's yes. become friendly with all those guys. And, yes. you know, how you doing? And yeah. everybody and the reporters. Yeah. I was even the recipient of a back clap as he walked out of uh, court. Wow. One day. That was my that was my moment. It was very. Yeah, we got there very early. I had a prime spot right in the front of the railing. Yeah. And I tried to ask him a question and I got a pat on the back. And it's interesting. He wants to be everybody. He wanted to be Trump's pal. Now he wants to be the government's pal. Yes. Now he wants to be the media's pal because he used to fight with the media. But you're, I, I think Mimi's spot on. It's absolutely the case that these lower level guys, they have, you know, parent issues. Yeah. They've glommed on to somebody. They've looked at them as a father figure. And when they feel betrayed or an opportunity to break free or something like that, they make fantastic cooperating witnesses. It's usually the hardened guys who have been in prison a few times and they're maybe higher up on the chain of command that try to stick it out. They're the ones who have nothing to lose. You know, they've always been bosses, so I can boss my way out of this. <laughs> All right. I managed to derail us on oh, the yes. Rick Gates thing, but I did want to get to this quid pro quo. So we know that Manafort emailed Gates and said, how do we use to get whole? Meaning, how do we right. use being Trump's campaign manager to get whole? He's saying right. to his lackey, as you say, because they know that they've got a lot of debt to the aluminum magnate, who's, right. I think, back in business now that he's been unsanctioned. That's Oleg Tarapaska. Amazing. I know. And they think that somehow, by simply being part of a campaign, winning or losing, they can offer, I guess, to Kalimnik, to Deripaska, so-called private briefings or even campaign data that they could use to not just help hack the election and thus own Trump, but also influence policy. It's amazing because to imagine that contract or at least that offer means that Manafort must have approached the person that he owed a lot of money Mm -hmm. and said, I can work this off. Yes. But but 
to do so, the amazing thing is how much access, how do you value a unit of access yes. when you owe several million dollars? Well, naturally, you do the smart thing, which is overvalue it. Hey, I'll give you briefings. <laughs> Those are worth $3 million a briefing. I yes. mean, of course, because he wants to pay off his debt. So why not puff up whatever it is he has mm-hmm. access to? And that's the other thing. It had to be so valuable, either in Manafort's mind to offer it or in whoever received the offer, say Deripaska, to accept it or consider it even. Yes. That that is, I think that's a question that we can guess at, but we won't know until some report comes out or we find out through some official way what exactly was the offer in this unholy contract. That's a great point, is that how much is this exact thing worth? And you've been talking about what is a thing of value anyway and who's it valuable to. But it does seem like these people who have mining interests or commodities interests, like Oleg Deripaska, like lots of the oligarchs, do have this keen interest in Ukraine policy. I mean, if it's simply about, you know, doubling your many billions or closing in on being as rich as Putin or helping to enrich Putin by paying him his tips, then it does mean something. And I'm sure Manafort could have made the case that it means something to be able to influence policy. And even if Trump just gave that one national security speech at the Mayflower Hotel, right? Mm-hmm. I'm getting some right. of the Seth Abrams right. and details wrong. But um, even if he had just given that speech, he introduced into American political discourse in front pages of our newspapers an incredibly odd approach to dealing with a hostile foreign power, namely completely signing up for all the candy that they wanted. You bring up a good point because as much as Manafort, we don't know what Manafort's offer was or his valuation of this information, you could take a step back and look at what Trump has done so far in dealing with Russia and say, oh, if you were a conspiracy theorist and you were using your vivid imagination, you might conclude, oh, this is worth even more than Manafort originally envisioned, even though Manafort has been taken down and is now in prison. But you don't need to look far to imagine the extent of influence on President Trump. And it may be influence that he's not even aware of. Mm -hmm. It may be something that Manafort told him a long time ago. It may have been something, maybe Manafort recognized that President Trump is malleable. I think you can safely say, just from watching him over these last few years, that he is very easy to influence compared to other folks. Yes, he's a product yes. of whoever talked to him in the green room 20 minutes right, ago. Right. He's a product of whatever person last had his ear. And there have mm-hmm. been at least a couple books that have come out that have implied that, that he listens to advisors. But really, the advisor who last talked to him probably leaves the most impression on him before he walks out and gives a speech. And so maybe Manafort already fulfilled some part of the bargain. Maybe maybe he's already had some debt forgiveness. It's hard to say, but it's astounding to think that if that's what Manafort did, if he came up with this idea for a contract for working off his debt, how did he value and how did he come up with an offer in units? I want to know in in uh, minutes of time. Yes. And how did he do it? It just seems amazing. The other lesson of the many from the last few years is that simply running for president and having your name on the front page of newspapers as either a candidate or even a campaign manager is worth a lot to the Russians. For instance, Giuliani's huge fees that he's charged on the heels not of being America's mayor in 9-11 and so forth, But his failed campaign for president was apparently something he could leverage in the former Soviet states. It's like seeing Dennis Rodman or Pamela Anderson. You're right. It is about, I mean, what President Trump did prove is that celebrity, having the everyone discounted the fact that all of America had known of Donald Trump for decades. Yeah. Not just New York. 
It was syndication that did it for Trump. I mm-hmm. mean, arguably, in my opinion, the way that everybody mm. in the country knew who he was yeah. was not because of page six. Yeah. I mean, most folks, I mean, I'm, I'm from a little town in western Michigan. Most folks aren't reading page six, no. but they're watching uh, The Apprentice. They're yeah. watching network TV. Some of them may not even have cable. Maybe they still have rabbit ears. There are folks who still have yes, rabbit ears. Yes. And people don't realize that all the other candidates, even Jeb Bush with a name like Bush, was a virtual unknown compared to people who've been watching The Apprentice yes. for the last couple decades. Yeah, and been told over and over again how powerful he was with the real estate porn of that show and That's his right. listening letters. You're right, and that was his character, too. I yeah. mean, very similar to wrestling. He was a real-life character, like Hulk Hogan. There's not that much different between Hulk Hogan and Donald Trump. Their name is their character. Yeah. They are the character 24 hours a day, and Donald Trump's character was... I am the pinnacle of success. I'm the best. People must have believed it after 10 years. And I guess the fact that the Russians saw that and also his desperation for various deals in Russia, that they were dazzled by that, too, where they actually thought he was an asset. Sure. The same way they thought Manafort was an asset, the same way they think Giuliani's an asset, shows this kind of coming together over a certain aesthetic of fame and World Wrestling Federation and Miss Universe and just, you know, bead and feather them, razzle dazzle them kind of stuff that every time one of these celebrities shows up and seems to be in that strange brainwashed place, Kanye West maybe most recently, but certainly Pamela Anderson and her sycophancy both to Putin and to Mm -hmm. Julian Assange, and then Dennis Rodman's just extremely disturbing appearance in Singapore with Kim Jong-un pushing both Potcoin and North Korea, that you just think somebody decided that they were very important Americans and that they could be used to brand, even if it's in a surreal life mode, a certain evidence that they owned the U.S. or they were here in the U.S. So both the American people bought the Trump story, and so did the Kremlin enough to want him to be president and help that, him. That's right. And if you, if that's what happened, when you think about it, it, in a way, it is the ultimate chess move. And Russians are known for their chess acumen. Yeah. But it is the ultimate chess move if you're a country that doesn't really have a whole lot in the way of tanks and missiles yeah. and aircraft carriers. And And you want a low cost way, right? And fed people. And you want a low cost way to try to attempt world domination. I mean, I hate to say it. I don't want to sound treasonous, but it. It's very clever. I mean, if that's if you're going to mm-hmm. go for disinformation mm-hmm. and uh, and and the Manchurian candidate approach mm-hmm. in terms of rubles spent, it it seems quite uh quite brilliant i hate to say i mean it seems like a a great way to undermine another country yeah you're absolutely right okay last question if we think that possibly it is someone over trump do you think that trump could ever flip on the kremlin like could he be useful if the idea is to sanction the hell out of everyone including putin and impoverish the leadership in Russia toward forcing some kind of regime change. That is fascinating that the idea that the DOJ would have that effect on foreign policy in that way through an investigation. But if their investigation concluded that the real criminals were, and I thought a lot about this, if the target ends up being the Kremlin, if it ended up being Putin, assuming for the moment that the DOJ believed it could even, it had jurisdiction, extraterritorial jurisdiction, to indict a president of Russia. I mean, we've deposed foreign leaders and arrested them and brought them back here before, but not on the scale of Russia. It's it's mind boggling that in theory, could the government, could the Mueller team be interested in the Kremlin and the information that Trump would provide? 
I got, I mean, I, I got to say it's possible, but I'm going to say something that may be unpopular. And it's that maybe Trump hasn't been lying about his personal knowledge and connection with Russians. Trump seems like a guy who had minions do mm-hmm. his work for him. And I think maybe in terms of minions and connections to Russia, maybe the Mueller team has topped out with Manafort. But living in hypothetical land, if Trump did have a relationship with Putin and the Russians, could the government, I don't think the DOJ could possibly consider any fish bigger than Trump because I'm just trying to think the way that Mueller might think. Because Mueller appears to believe in DOJ guidance that you can't indict a sitting president. So he might run into similar barriers if he thought about indicting a foreign president for Mm -hmm. different reasons. So for that reason, would he end up taking the easiest prey and stop the buck at the president of the United States? Might, even if Mueller saw an indictable offense against Putin, might he decline just because of the jurisdictional issues? I think it's possible. But I love the idea that the target ultimately is not the White House, but the curvy house. I don't know what you call the Kremlin, but the, <laughs> the Hershey's Kiss yes. Uh, house. Yes, it's possible. And it's really an interesting thought. Thank you for entertaining it. My guest has been Danny Savalos, a criminal defense attorney and legal analyst for MSNBC. Thanks again, Danny. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. We're not afraid of feedback. So tell us what you think. Our Twitter lines are open. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And before I go, have you signed up for Slate Plus yet? Come on, you got to sign up for Slate Plus. You get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free, tons of digital swag. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. Kate James performed today's sketch. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Ben Franklin. President Ben Franklin was ordained by God because he had a lot of inventions and God was like, we need more stuff right now, like electricity. The band, the presidents of the United States. The band, the presidents of the United States were ordained by God (laughs) because they sang about peaches, which is what Trump wants to call the wall. Franklin Pierce. Pass.